best thing you can do is possibly hire someone better than you. It's absolutely true. So we've been bringing in a lot of consultants. We've been bringing in people that know better than we do. I mean, we're architects and designers. We went to university to learn how to do projects. We didn't train in um, people and culture. We didn't we didn't train in the business aspects necessarily. So there's a lot that we can learn. There's a lot of people out there that know a lot more than we do. Thank you for joining us for the second episode with Simon Pohl, Global Design Director at Unispace, and our host, Ben Lawney, Senior Associate at PTID, as we discover more about Simon's journey through the business of architecture. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures, and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. IDEA 2020 is now open for entries. If you have projects that have been completed since the 1st of January 2019, or projects that will be completed by the 28th of May 2020, then get your entries in now. This year, IDEA will be donating 10% of all entry fees to a bushfire charity to help those affected by the unprecedented bushfires experienced across Australia in 2019 and early 2020. Entries close on the 5th of June 2020. You can find links to more information in our episode show notes. And now, over to Ben and Simon. One of the highlights of my career was actually when I returned back to Australia and was fortunate enough to lead the the NAB project Mm -hmm. at 700 Burke Street here in Melbourne. And that project was that perfect transition or perfect point in time where you've got a large corporate financial institution wanting to do something different. We had uh, a great team on the ground, a developer looking to do something different, a project management team, architecture team, everyone all coming together and trying to do the best they possibly could on a site that was, you know, it was a triangular site. It was on the yes. side of a stadium, it would, you know, uh, bounded by a, a freeway and train tracks. And so there was a lot going against it, but what everyone had was a common goal to make it the best it possibly could. And so there was no preconceived ideas on that project. And Everyone was aligned all the way through the process. And that was the brilliant thing about it. And it had great planning. Everyone yep. knew their role, knew what to do and how to do it. And the planning into that was, was brilliant. And so now you've got a building that will hopefully last 50 years with a, a very flexible uh, internal space that will continue to churn and change yes. over the years for NAB or whoever moves in there next. It was a big project. It was obviously a very successful project. It won a lot of awards. From a commercial workplace strategy point of view, what do you think was unique about that project? So we managed one of the one of the things we're often, I guess, given from some of our clients is a brief. The beauty about that project is we started on the workplace strategy because we're thinking about what this thing could be a year in advance before we started to put pen to paper. So we're in working with the client and the customer for a year, collecting the data, listening, doing the workshops, understanding exactly what it was of the way that they worked now. Yep. And then extruded out of that the influences of where we're going to go into the future. And so at the time, they said, well, talk to these people in these groups and these businesses within the business, but we don't know if they're going to move in. 
So yeah. you need to make it as flexible as you possibly can for the next 15 years anyway, because that's how long the lease is. But here's a flavour of what could possibly move in, but it may not move in. And interestingly enough, they didn't move in. But what we ended up doing was studying the way that they were working, the way that people were collaborating, focusing, learning, mm-hmm. etc., and making sure that we had a right, I guess it was a formula that could flex as much as possible over time, understanding not how a particular department worked, but how the bank worked. Uh, and that was a critical thing because anyone can move in anywhere at any time. So when you're undertaking a brief like that, I'm really interested as to how you would balance the flexibility of extreme change, 15 years, you know, radical technological changes, you know, what is a bank in 15 years? Compared to, well, we've briefed with these departments and this is exactly what they are currently doing. It was a part of the old, we've got to look back to look forward. Um, You've got to talk to a bunch of smart people as well that have an idea beyond what we are, uh, yes. what we have about what this could possibly be. And and, and that was a great thing about the project. We had so many collaborators trying to, you know, we had um, co-working people come and talk to us. We had technologists. We yeah. had futurists. We had all these people. And uh, so to say it was, you know, I led a project was great, but there was hundreds of people involved in this project. Um, and they all influenced the final outcome. So, but if you don't ask the question, you know, you live in this this state of constantly thinking that you've got all the solutions. Yeah. So we asked and we, we, we realised at the beginning, we didn't know the solution. We had to work our way to it. So the client was a part of it. The developer was a part of it. Everyone was a part of working out what that solution was. And a big part of the time was, you know, there was a big move to Agile. You know, at the time it was ABW. Was that the right solution? Well, actually, is it moving to something different? And what do you need as a part of that? So we looked at the tech sector because mm-hmm. the bank then started to move into more tech areas. So what do they need? Well, it's the stand-up Kanban boards, the post-it notes everywhere. So actually we need walls. So maybe an all-glass building with no walls is not the right solution. So let's think about where that's going. Let's think about making sure we've got um, pervasive Wi-Fi flooded because we're going to need more and more data in in the future. And how do we get that quickly? How do we bring teams together quickly? And this is the start of project teams as well. So Mm. we're working as groups, but we weren't working as teams. So immediately we thought, hang on, here's something that we should probably follow through and how are teams going to work in a space over a period of time as well. So there were a few little inklings that we saw from other projects that we started to question and then put in place. And at the time they were questioned and and rigorously challenged, but at the end they were the right solution. And that's because we had great people around the table bringing this information to us at the right time. And obviously, you know, a large-scale building like that, very complex, integrated fit-out, your architect and interiors... It must have been a, a big team. How do you approach that kind of leadership role? With a lot of energy. I mean, it was a, it was a long project. I mean, it was a three-year project, all mm-hmm. in all. And uh, the interiors team alone got to 22 at one stage. Yep. Uh, when we were in the, the deep throes of, of documentation, the architecture team uh, was up over a dozen. The strategy team was still there. So James Calder and the strategy team were still there guiding through the process as well. So it was a, it was a big monster. And we could see the progress and we could all, we'd all bought into this vision Mm-hmm. Of what this building was going to be or this possible solution was going to be. So the energy was all there. So anyone that joined onto the team bought into it. And you could see the progress week after week after week that this thing was something bigger than any of us. And when I say bigger, I mean in terms of what we're trying to do was bigger than anyone had ever done before uh, within the group. So it was it was a fantastic – we were driven 
by getting better at what we were doing. Um, so the energy was a big part of it. Um, we, you know, there are always things that you could have done better. We were transitioning to Revit at the time. So we'll go through that. It was probably, uh, in, in retrospect, probably the right building in terms of complexity for Revit, but probably the wrong scale of building for us to, to test it on. So we had a lot of lessons learned out of that. So it was a lot of um, time and effort invested in, in, in pulling that information out. Um, but all in all, it, it was the, the, the fact that we had a great, product that we're all striving for kept the team together uh, working working hard and very long late late nights at, yeah. at times do you think that there's people that have mentored you and shown you how to drive teams like that in your career so mentoring i i love the idea of uh, sort of the karate kid mr miyagi daniel kind of you know one mentor wax on wax off and they, they teach you everything about life but for me it, I, I never not that i didn't seek that out i i found myself being mentored by multiple people, all with different strengths. And I think that's that, you know, the, the, the difference uh, of stepping into a leadership role. I found there are great people people, mm-hmm. great creative powerhouses and, uh, and people that are good at the documentation and the technical and getting stuff built and great on site and, and having a vision and, and leading a crew and things. But I haven't yet found that all in one person. So I've taken mentorship from people all over the world who have these incredible powers, superpowers, mm-hmm. uh, and I've tried to take that on uh, as much as possible. So at the moment, I'm learning about how to be better people people um, and understanding the nuances of, of how to deal with um, different personality types. Uh, when they say one thing, they actually mean that kind of thing. And this is, this is where their career wants to go, but they need these tools to be able to do it and how to get them better. Um, and uh, the secret I found, it's not a secret, people have been saying it for ages, is actually get the best, best people to work with you right? You know, yeah. they say, you know, the best thing you can do is possibly hire someone better than you. It's absolutely true. So we've been bringing in a lot of consultants. We've been bringing in people that know better than we do. I mean, we're, we're architects and designers. We went to university to learn how to do projects. We didn't train in um, people and culture. We didn't, we didn't no. train in the business aspects necessarily. So there's a lot that we can learn. And there's a lot of people out there that know a lot more than we do. So the mentorship has come from everywhere, all over the world. And I think that's, and I guess you've got to take that out as well. And I don't think you'd I mean, like I said, I, I don't know if the Mr. Miyagi is out there for everyone. So I'm a big fan of moving around yeah. different firms, different parts of the world, and just seeing what's out there and taking it on. Be a sponge. Take it all on. Obviously, after that great NAB project, you made another career shift mm. and you went to Unispace. Tell us about Unispace. It was an interesting shift, and I don't think many people understood why I did it. You know, I, I managed to work on these amazing projects all the way around the world. But like I mentioned, I, we don't learn everything at university. And, and what, I, what I saw the opportunity at Unispace is here was a young, fledgling business with big ambitions, good energy. And I wanted to um, round myself out, I guess, with the, the business side of the industry. And while at Woods Baggett, I was getting a bit of that. And at, at Chipperfield, I had a bit of that. And at Gensler, it was all great. But here was an opportunity to, to put one hand on the wheel and help propel this, this company forward. So this is a... And you'd hear a lot about startups, yep. uh, you know, little fledgling startups and things like that. And and I was a little bit intrigued about what where this thing could go and and what it could do. And you know, I was started to study what what are the stages of a startup. So if you work through it, you know, you, d- you do the research and then you've got the commitment to do it, and then you need to get some traction, and then you 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 start to get into the the idea of what this thing is mm. and how it can um, morph into something. And that was the stage they approached me. And so I said, look. 
I can see what you've what you've got. You've got a product. You've tested different parts of the world, and the, and the company had started simultaneously in six cities around the world. So it yeah. started off as a global firm. And the idea is that they, at the time, they were doing a little bit of design, a little bit of uh, furniture, a little bit of construction. And at the time, they sort of didn't really have a clear vision of where this thing could go. But they were just testing, you know, just testing the market to see what they wanted. But the clever thing they did very early on in 2009, 2010, is instead of telling the clients what it was that they were going to do, they asked the clients, what do you need? And at the mm. time, the clients came back and said, oh, wow, we've never been asked what we need. Let me think about that. And they said, well, what if we had brilliant strategy and great ideas around where this thing could go for the future to future-proof it? What if we had great top-tier talent and design? What if we had really good project management across it? And we want someone to take all the risk on because I've got 19 projects I need to do yep. around the world. I need someone to help me do it. Uh, and if you're around the world simultaneously, then fantastic. We can, you can help us out. And so it kind of started under that premise all that guise of an idea of a, a global firm starting instantaneously. And when I joined, we were about 100 people, uh, as far as I could tell, yeah. around the world. We didn't have many systems or processes, and uh, but they'd worked out at that stage that there was something there. They'd found a gap in the market, and it was a bit of a challenger brand. And that's what I started to explore very early on with the leadership team, was how to take this thing somewhere that no one had ever gone, and not to, you know repeat what Spock would have said, but um, getting, <laughs> taking this, this thing which sat between, you know, procurement camps of design yep. and build or design yep. and construct and the traditional way of doing things, but there were problems with both. And was there a third way? And I guess that's the, for those who don't know you, who looked at a sheet of paper and went, Gensler, Woods, Chipperfield, et cetera, et cetera, and then a DNC firm would go... Oh, that seems like a very unusual choice. DNC obviously has this stigma about it, certainly in Australia. There's other parts of the world where it's a much more common way to procure things, but but in Australia it does have a bit of a stigma about it. And so you chose that as your next adventure. Did you think this was a way to do DNC in a new manner? It was the opportunity to try to do something different. And the, the way that we looked at it is, is it's not that the industry is broken, but possibly the way that we approach it is flawed. So here was, a, here was a bunch of people that were looking at it with a completely fresh lens of where could this thing go and uh, questioning with, with the advances in technology and the way that our clients are procuring now, the more globalness yep. of the way that we procure projects. Um, was there something that could happen here? And they didn't know the answer, but they were just exploring opportunities. So I, I didn't see it necessarily as um, it was moving to a DNC. That was part of the offer that they had, but actually it was about to create a design firm that could offer mm -hmm. a holistic solution or an integrated solution. And it was at the very, very early, early stages where I said, well, actually, if we're going to do this proper integrate, how much does a client need? How much of a service do they need? And if we're problem solvers, like we were speaking about, then maybe they've got more than one problem. They need to procure one. Maybe we can help them. And the consultancy firms, you know, look at the look at the big four, right? So they've, you know, they've they've taken it into another level. So thinking about how to be a proper service provider, mm -hmm. and uh, that was a big part of the initial stage. So why not? If we're not stuck just to design, 
How can we do it in a different way and what do our clients need? So the strategy and the workplace strategy played a big part of that. And then, of course, linking them together. So strategy, linking into design seamlessly rather yep. than one handoff to the next. And then the ability for design to work closely on the buildability, the cost uh, and the time cost quality mm-hmm. with, the, with the construction or the construction management side of things um, to complete the project all under, I guess it's not about control, but it's making sure the client's happy through the process yes. Um, with the right client management through the process seemed like a reasonable model that we should test and try. You know, five years on from since I started, we're now 680 people around the world in 49 offices. Yeah. So th- there was a market there, but no, what we didn't know the market was there. Yes. It was just testing it and trying it. We, we made a lot of mistakes and that was a big part of it. So it's now, it no longer sits in the design and design and construct, design and build um, or the traditional. We're somewhere in the middle, but we bid on all three. It's a bit of a hybrid, yep. I guess you can say, with the flexibility of the procurement route to be able to chop and change and buy what services you need. And if you think back to 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was, you were working at Gendler, for example, and then you compare it to the way you're working at Unispace, do you think you're offering a, a better service model to the client? And and if so, what is it in that model that allows you to do that? It's slightly different. I mean, it's what they're getting at the end is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, the process that we go through is slightly different, or as we call it, the methodology is, is, yep. is quite different. So um, in the early meetings, it's like an early engagement. You'd have your uh, delivery, technical delivery person in there listening to the conversation through the process in the background, writing down some notes and working out how much things are going to cost in the background, but being able to guide the client through the process rather than waiting at the big stages for the big drum yep. roll presentation and da 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 by the way, you can't afford it, but it looks good, right? Don't worry about it. We'll do value engineering in the next phase. So the designer, you know, you go back and the designers cry for a little bit because you have to rub out every all good ideas that we just came Absolutely. to, throw it in the bin, and then you start again. So the idea of um, constantly iterating through the process is actually healthier, we find, not only for the client, but actually for the strategy, design, and the delivery teams, because they're learning and they're changing and tweaking and moving um, instead of just going, no, this is the way that we've always done it. And it's a linear process. This is that iterative process that we always talk about when it comes to innovation. And we, we've managed to get to a point now where we've streamlined it so it doesn't take any longer than the normal process. In fact, it's quicker because the way that we've set the studios up is we're sitting side by side. So you'd be sitting next to the strategist, sitting next to the client relations manager, sitting next to the cost, sitting next to the, the person that's actually going to build it on site. And you're getting all that information back in real time, not waiting for a, your Monday or Tuesday meeting. So it's, it's, it's faster and uh, I, I find it healthier. The conversation's brilliant. Yeah, okay. Sitting in the studio, the conversations are very healthy. And the, if there's any tension between the different um, disciplines, it happens there in the studio and you work it out immediately rather yes. than going away and uh, you know, letting it fester yep. and turn into something that's bigger than it's not. And is the client brought into this process? All, all the way. That's the idea. So the client from the very beginning gets probably more exposure to more people earlier on. So while we are looking at the output of the different stages of the method, they're seeing more and more people. So we're building that trust all the way through the process. So when it comes to um, telling them what it's going to cost, they've already met the technical delivery person uh, three or four times through the process. So they know that they're in the meetings listening, they know that it's integrated, and they know it's all wrapped up together as as one integrated solution. So the the trust, and we were talking about that earlier, the trust is being built from a very early stage. So we're investing a lot more time and effort up front 
to get the solution. But we find that even though on, on occasion the client's not willing to pay the fee up front, yep. we actually get the benefit out the back because that's already built. We don't need to redraw. Everyone's on the same page. And we, the ability for someone to make a decision on site, because I've been in the early meetings, yeah. actually is, is gold for us. And it's interesting there that you've brought the you know the the fee into that mix. Do you think there's an advantage in this? Because I assume that there's a it's a turnkey solution. You know, you're you're guaranteeing it will cost X amount, and we'll hand you the keys on the twenty third. So all of that risk is with you, and you work that out back at house. Do you think that's a great benefit to the client, or do you think there's a? And I guess this comes to trust, but there's a. Well, it's just this big lump of money and there's nothing cut up in it. So what we what we do is instead of the old design and construct process, whereas you, you sign up to a contract at the beginning um, and what I say is you, you get what you get and don't get upset, right? So what we do is we have a two-stage procurement process. So stage one engagement is up until contract, so mm-hmm. until you, you basically employ the, the building company. So what they do is they buy design services just as they would buy any design services up until that stage. But we have the ability, if they're happy with our costing and our process and our team and our performance and the way that we've handled the client and everything we've done, there is an opportunity to then win the contract for the construction. So there is an out for the client at that point. So if they're not completely happy with what we've provided, we bring QSs on board to check, uh, we bring certifiers on board and we bring everyone on board. So there's that ability for the client to double check everything before they then I mean, if you think about the, the, the cost, right? So 90%, of, you're about to spend 90% of your budget yeah. at that point as opposed to the 10% up front. So making sure that that's the right decision. And if we don't come to an agreement, then they take all of our information and go to the market. This is, this is the different, and this is that third box, you know, the yeah. third way of yeah. talking about it. It's the flexibility of procuring something that if it goes swimmingly, then great. We hope to get an opportunity at the, the contract to build it. If it doesn't, then you've got opportunities as well. So it, it's trying to give the client more options and more yep. flexibility to make uh, the decisions uh, when they need to. And if you were to crystal ball it, what do you think is, is happening in the next kind of 10 years in this sector? Where are the clients starting to say, oh, actually, now that you've asked me what I want, I'd like this service? And if you look at uh, classic as a, the, you know, the, the rise and fall of WeWork, right? So we, we saw the old, uh, the older companies out there, the Regis and the Surf Corps out there doing it in a very, and they were doing a good job for their particular market. Uh, and WeWork came through and um, changed the real estate industry forever, probably. So, and we know, uh, well, the writings are still coming out about WeWork unraveling, but they've made a major influence. So I think thinking about things in a different way or to use an overused term disruption mm-hmm. uh, is going to continue um, as people challenge. And they're not necessarily from inside the industry that they're going to challenge. They're going to be from outside the industry, challenging yeah. the architectural and design industry and the construction industry to do things differently. So we've got to keep an open mind and we've got to be nervous. Yeah. It's interesting that often innovation comes from from outside, do you think there's a? Do you think that's about a fresh lens? Is that why innovation very rarely comes from inside an industry? I think that we are trained in a certain way to think a certain way, and we're not—I won't call it brainwashed—but you know, everything we do at university, everything we read, um, the way that we go about the the, the process is about getting exactly the right methodology and making yep. sure that the contract's exactly right and the fee matches up, and it's very competitive. I think it's it's. Industry is going to be disrupted by someone who doesn't or hasn't been trained that way and doesn't think that way because that's why it's going to be disrupted. But the the innovation, I think, will be someone going, actually, I applied that idea on something else. Could I do it to this particular industry? And, And that's the exciting bit. 
I mean, we're trying to, it's a cliche to say we disrupt ourselves all the time, but we're working, we've got a skunk works in New York at the moment. We've, mm-hmm. we've hired data scientists and um, coders to start looking at um, AI and automation uh, within, really within one area of, of uh, the, the space planning aspect of it, right? So if you think about it, if we get, the fees aren't getting any bigger on any project, so we need to look at efficiencies in-house. The more efficient that we can get, the more time that we can spend on the creative side of things, it's an advantage for the designers. So thinking about that, we're, we're trying to work out what are the bits that we can make more efficient. And some of the, the costing processes back into the modeling, um, going straight into 3Ds, mm-hmm. white card models earlier on so the client can make decisions quicker. You know, most clients can't read plans. How yep. do we help the clients read plans? Well, you know, VR is coming along, which is fantastic. It's a lot of work in that area. This goes beyond a still image these days because you know, how many can you do on a project? So a lot more of the fly-throughs, the VR, uh, is being a part of what we do very early on. And it's not about you know, nailing what the finish on the wall is. It's about how the functionality of the space works. How does the light work? How does the balance of the floor plate work? How do the teams work, mm-hmm. neighbourhoods, etc.? Very early on in a white card model in 3D, linked back into the design process, of having our designers working in 3D very early on mm-hmm. uh, is actually critical and getting better, more refined results rather than getting into documentation and go, actually, you know what? That elevation doesn't work. Yep, or, or getting on site. Yeah. So we've been on a transition for the last uh, last two and a half years now. So we're now globally on Revit. Um, everything's in the cloud. Uh, we're using Procore for our project management side of things, our yep. costing. Uh, we've got Vista in the background doing all our, all our financial reporting. And now we're overlaying the, the AI and mm-hmm. machine learning across the top of it to link it together to help us make better decisions, which is exciting. So we plan to see uh, the outcome of that by the middle of middle of 2020. Oh, that's exciting. In terms of how, as an industry, we share that knowledge, that's great that Simon's gone and done that. I'm over here doing something else. You know, there's another firm over there doing something different. How do you think we work better together so that we are maintaining our IP, obviously, you know, there's great investment that goes into some of these things and you need to see return on some of that investment. Otherwise, people won't make it. But you've commented that we need to work better together to kind of show the value that we're offering the industry. How do we find a balance between those two things? I think the sharing economy is starting to show us the way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look with the recent um, bushfires, very topical at the moment, you know, Architects Assist out there offering uh, yep. pro bono work to help people get back on their feet and, and, and help them rebuild their houses. Whether it's sharing a scooter uh, on the street or, or a car or um, you know, getting a lift or whatever it is, I, I think we're, we're being transitioned into that greater sharing economy. So there are certain things you're right in terms of the IP of you know, exactly what are special sources that keeps everyone uh, yep. together. It might be written down. Uh, it might not be. It might be locked in a vault. But th- some things you do hold on to. But I still think it's that uh, the ability to – once a project's done, your IP, you can walk through your IP. Yes. But it's a mix of the client's IP as well. Absolutely. And because every project's different, every project's unique, well, it should be anyway, then uh, the ability to sit there and go, actually, that was a really good idea. I like that. Let's evolve it. And wouldn't it be great if I went through one of your projects and said, I really love what you did there. I thought about it. We took it back and I evolved it to this. What do you think about that? And then we evolve something together. Yep. And I think all of a sudden you c- we can then both go to our next clients and say, we've been working on this really cool idea. We, it, it just so happens that some of the functionality that you're looking at or where you're looking to take your brand might pick up on this. How about testing it? And then we can come back and do it again. So I think these forums, instead of being a um, 
a showcase of how good am I? Maybe we should do it more as an industry of look how far the industry's come. And by the way, we're disrupting ourselves or we're challenging ourselves. So we probably might be able to protect ourselves a little bit more mm-hmm. by sharing and getting better at it. Or, you know, at the moment we're ripe for disruption, as they say. So <laughs> yeah. maybe take ourselves off the extinction list and drive it forward as, a, as an industry and help promote each other. It's interesting though, you know, are we on the extinction list? Do, do, we, do we see a world where we no longer exist? Does AI start spitting out test fits that, sure, they're not as good as what a year's worth of strategy might have done, but it's actually only discernible by a few, the difference. And the predictive analytics and where's it, where it's going to take us and is there the perfect answer for everyone? I'd like to think not. Right. You know, I'd like to, you know, the, the creative industry has been put into a, into a little bubble for the time being, but I don't yeah. think it will be long. No. And there are a lot, of indus- a lot of services out there now, web services that are offering solutions for you for very little money. Absolutely. And uh, undercutting what we do. And um, I'm not, you know, good on them for challenging it. But you know what? Uh, I've found that in the industry where they're looking for a, um, a solution that's got longevity and actually relates back to the, the, the functionality or the brand or what they're trying to achieve yep. for the future, I think spending a lot more time with a client listening is going to help rather than just issuing a simple brief over, the, over a website. And it's building the trust that we're talking about is that, that fate, well, you know, when I say this, I actually mean this and let's work through it together and co-create as well. But I'd love to think that creativity lasts forever. Um, yeah. But then again, we we thought that everyone needed hairdressers, and you know that might become extinct as well. So. Or cars, or cars, yeah, drivers, drivers. You um you mentioned the bushfires a moment ago, and I know that you do some volunteer work. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So I got I got interested in uh, this is actually in London, um, doing some work for a hospital. And it was uh, one of the ladies happened to be in a bar overhearing a conversation around the hospital needed some uh, a new ward done and they didn't have any budget. So we managed to raise some money, got a group of people together and, and redid a – it was actually a movie. We put a movie cinema in the hospital okay. for children yep. um, that were bedridden so that their families and the kids could watch. So we got Virgin Media on board. and um, So it was, it was an amazing project. And all of a sudden I thought, look how amazing – that was as a group, as a team, a yep. team building exercise, but actually the impact on these kids was unbelievable. So when I came back to Australia, we managed to talk to a chap called Con who was running or had started up the ASRC, the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre. And he was a guy, charismatic guy, big vision, yep. basically kicked out of university and just saw that these poor asylum seekers, if you're seeking asylum, you don't get any government assistance. You're basically in limbo. And so he got a group of people together and said, well, Let's offer them food, let's offer them training, let's get them back onto their feet, let's get their family back together while they're, while they're seeking asylum. And working with this incredible human with more energy than you and I put together really addicted me to the idea that we can all help in some small way. Yep. You know, the, the bushfires is, is fantastic, but there are so many causes out there that we could um, get involved in, but where do we spend our time? So that's the decision that we all need to make uh, for ourselves and what, what interests us. And then one of the offshoots of uh, the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre was one asylum seeker herself that started her own company yeah. out of it, which was great, and it's called Sister Works, and it's yep. in Swan Street in, in Richmond. And uh, she works with other asylum seeker ladies, basically, that had no skills, and they make um, crafts, uh, they make things for the home, they make jewellery and things like that as well, and they sell them at the markets. 
So, and I find great joy in that. And I'd love to do more. Um, and that's a big part of, I think we're in a, in a privileged situation within the, the design industry that we know yeah. a lot of people and we have some connections and we can help people in a, even if it's a small way, they don't need to donate money, a bit of yeah. time and make it a project. It's interesting that because, you know, there's a lot of people and there's been a lot of discussion about how do we come together and I think the bushfires is at the moment really capturing people's attention. So how do we come together and get people who want to help? They have some time, they're happy to give it, but they want to make sure that they're giving it in a really valuable way. In a meaningful way. Mm. That's right. And it would be interesting to see where Architects Assist go. I mean, it's, it's, it's early days, and I know that um, there are a number of bodies around the world that do, you know, whether it's building houses in Africa, uh, work digging wells, things like that. Um, but it's the it'd be great to see and follow the story of where this goes of helping the farmers and those that have lost their houses with the architects going forward and what those outcomes are. Um, and I'd like to think it's not just the small architectural firms doing mm. it as well. I'd like to yep. see all the big firms get behind it. And I know that you know we got to we got to keep the money coming through the door. But there's a bigger opportunity with the bigger firms than the smaller firms. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben and Simon. Tune in next week when we wrap up Simon's third and final episode and to find out who will be joining the discussion the following week. And don't forget to get your idea entries in. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.